Hi everybody, hope you're doing very well. September the 18th, 2011. Hey, look at that, got the year right. Uh, just after 2 p.m. And uh, interesting stuff been floating around the media recently. Rick Perry, no relation to Katie, I believe, has been talking about how he views Social Security as a Ponzi scheme. And I wish to take extreme objection to the characterization of Social Security as a, as a Ponzi scheme. That is irresponsible in the extreme. It is absolutely inaccurate. It is, in fact, an insult to Ponzi schemes because Social Security is far worse than a Ponzi scheme. It is way too generous to compare it to a Ponzi scheme. Now, a Ponzi scheme is you set up some investment, quote, investment deal or whatever, and you get people to kick in money, and then you pay people uh, for who are already in from people you get coming in who are new, right? So you get 10 people to put in uh, five grand, and then you get 20 people to put in five grand, and you pay the first five granders with money from the second group, and it grows and grows, and then it explodes. This almost destroyed Albania's economy, I think, in the 90s. So, uh, so a Ponzi scheme is, is that, and they're, of course, illegal because they are entirely too benevolent relative to government programs. Um, Social Security, of course, has some aspects of uh, a Ponzi scheme in that it is a wealth transfer from the young to the old, which is one of the most regressive taxes you can imagine. Uh, the, the baby boomers are the richest generation that has ever existed on the planet, at least in the West. They have had, you know, 40 or 50 years to gather their wealth together and have done a good deal of, uh, uh, of doing that. And now uh, that they're coming close to retirement, as of 2010, Social Security is in the red. It is already paying out more than it has or is drawing in in revenues. And this is before the bulge of the boomers retire. So obviously the system is doomed and nobody wants to talk about that. They all, oh, 2037, and it's all complete nonsense. And everybody has this, I don't know, this idea, this fantasy or whatever, that, that the money that was taken from you uh, by force was, um, I mean, at two levels. You have a tax uh, on Social Security on your paycheck and the employer pays half as well. So that's simply another deduction, the hidden deduction from your paycheck. Uh, and the money uh, is uh, blown. It's gone. It's been, it's been used to, as Harry Brown used to say, prop up the Russian ruble 20 years ago for three hours. I mean, it's, it's just gone. It's evaporated. It's snaked its way into the oily, deep pockets of the politically connected. And the money is, is just gone. Toast. Va it's vanished. And so there's nothing there for people to retire on. And so the only way that you can pay people's retirement is to take a gun to the temple of the young and get them to cough up their damn meager resources at the beginning of their careers to line the pockets of those who've had an entire lifetime to generate wealth and to save, uh, even outside of Social Security. The, quote, assets <laughs> that the Social Security system have are government IOUs. They're bonds, which the government has to pay through increasing taxes or borrowing. So why is Social Security not like a Ponzi scheme? Well, a Ponzi scheme... It's voluntary. A Ponzi scheme is not something, I mean, you're drawn in by greed or by corruption or by ignorance, but you're not forced to be there. Nobody who was ripped off by Bernie Madoff was held up at gunpoint. So first of all, Ponzi schemes are voluntary and social, social security is entirely coercive and violent and, and destructive as a result. So, uh, so the first thing is it's an insult to Ponzi schemes to say that um, it's like social security because a Ponzi scheme is voluntary. The other thing that's true about a Ponzi scheme is in a Ponzi scheme, a private Ponzi scheme, you cannot sell off your children. You cannot sell off the, un the unborn of strangers. You, you, know, you get hosed and 
your uh, financial indebtedness begins and ends with you. You can't go and sell off your children for the sake of profit in the present, but that, of course, is not the case with Social Security, which is basically funded on the wholesale auction of the unborn. So this is another way in which uh, Social Security is not like uh, a, a Ponzi scheme. Ponzi schemes collapse relatively quickly. Uh, the Ponzi scheme called Social Security has been running, I guess, a little over 100 years as far as Germany goes, and of course about half that time in America, and uh, it's completely toast. Yeah, a Ponzi scheme, sorry, a Social Security, much like government pension programs, are predicated on actuarial analyses or statistics that would be completely illegal in the private sector. So the projections for how much is going to be available for the seniors and how much is going to be available for government employees is based upon completely absurd returns, 7, 8, 9% of returns on the money that's invested. This is all complete nonsense. I mean, stocks have been flat for years and in fact have lost value in many cases. So there's just not going to be any money there. The difference, of course, is the Ponzi scheme implodes and takes the people, people's savings who were in it voluntarily and who had the chance to get out whenever they wanted for many years. We could only hope to elevate, to elevate Social Security to the status of a Ponzi scheme. I mean, that would be mwah, fantastic. It means you could take your money out. It means you could, you're not there by force. It means that if you're not in the system, you can't be held liable for its shortfalls. So you, you can't sell the unborn. I mean, God, if we could only elevate government crimes to the status of merely private crimes, that would be a staggering leap forward in the reduction of violence within society. If, if you could get the government to be as ethical, as responsible, as voluntary as Bernie Madoff, that would be a massive step forward in human society. But frankly, given the grey power of the voters and the general ignorance of people on the subject and the hysteria that floats around this topic, don't hold your breath for Bernie Madoff to become the moral ideal that our politicians should strive towards. Instead, they're going to throw him in jail while they get fat pensions and book deals. It's the Freedom Made Radio Sunday Show, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, fdrurl.com forward slash chat if you want to get involved. Uh, it's every Sunday. Uh, I hope to see you there. Now let's move on with the show. Hey, sorry, we lost a little bit of audio here at the beginning. The fine gentleman, the listener, was describing how he was listening to music at work, a Trent Reznor song, and became very emotional and and began to cry. And so he's just going to ask me if I experienced anything similar. What happened to me at work, I ended up crying for five to ten minutes in the conference room, and I was all right after that. But is that something you've experienced or have experienced? Yeah, yeah. I mean, d- down to the last detail. Uh, actually, I mean, it, it doesn't mean it's normal. It just means we may both be normal or completely abnormal. But certainly, the um, the experience that I had was was identical. Uh, I was listening to um, this is just when I'd started therapy, and um, I was and this is after I'd been working on you know opening up my heart. You know, sometimes it feels like you're trying to dislodge something like a bowling ball in a toilet with a, <laughs> a plunger. But um, uh, I was listening to, I even remember the song. It was the Bare Naked Ladies off the Gordon album, a song called Good Boy, which I would sometimes sing uh, at, at karaoke or just sort of in the shower. And it's got, uh, to me, the, mo- the lyrics are, are very moving and we don't have to sort of get into why because I want to sort of main, make sure we focus upon you. But uh, it it was a sadness that I experienced, and yes, I went to the washroom, and you know, went I went into the 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 stall, 
and uh, and wept and wept and wept and it was convulsive and it was like I don't know, like a cat with a hairball or a snake coughing up the fragments of an ostrich egg or something. It was really like just a wretch of agony. And it felt actually bigger even than me. It felt like almost like a world sadness or a cosmic sadness or a sadness of the species that is so broken and, and violent and depressed and anxious and so on. It felt like a, a, a suffering of, of the world that was coalescing within me. And uh, it took quite a while for me to regain some composure. And of course, as, as is always the case with those kinds of emotions, I felt better. Uh, I felt better afterwards. Uh, I think that it's, it's the drilling through layers. It's drilling through layers of that which is unacceptable to feel in the, in the past. And so I, I think that music is a great trigger for that kind of stuff, particularly if the music uh, strikes something in you that is a layer of sadness from your history that you know, a, a lot of us are quite sad in, in many levels. It doesn't mean that's all we are, but a lot of us, you know, 90% of parents spank their kids. A lot of us have sad uh, things that have happened to us that lay within us, you know, like dinosaur bones. We attempt to reconstruct the evolution of ourselves and we dig down into these layers and we hit a very powerful, very animated bones of history. So, uh, I I understand it. I I accept it. I think that the music must have e either that was music you listened to during a difficult time in your life. It reminded you of a difficult time in your life, and you connected with the difficulty of that time. Because life is not difficult because it's difficult. Life is difficult because we can't share how difficult it is. That's that's the real difficulty in life. Anything that we can share is bearable. Uh, everything which we cannot share is unbearable. Uh, and because it's unbearable, we tend to not experience it at the time. You know, it's like if you if you if you have a sudden injury that is really bad, then a lot of times you will uh, simply become unconscious. Now you just go unconscious, right? You just pass out because the pain is overwhelming or the body damage is too intense. Uh, this happens in a car crashes and stuff. And yeah, that which is overwhelming, we shut down from. And the suffering in our life that is overwhelming is a suffering that we have no one to share it with. And so, again, these are just my thoughts and opinions on it, but I completely understand. I, I think it's perfectly healthy. I think it's perfectly normal. But I do think that it's tragic that we live in a society where we have to wait for those moments to feel the tragedies that we experienced in the past. Does that, does that make any sense? It does make sense. Uh, do, you, do you think that maybe, like for me as a coping mechanism, I may have deposited a lot of my despair and sadness in that music and uh, instead of processing it and maybe now listening to it now that, I'm in, that I am in a safe place and I've made the conscious decision to go into my past to deal and process with trauma, that uh, it's kind of like it's stored on a hard drive in this music uh, so to speak, and uh, that I'm re re experiencing it, are able to now experience it. I mean, d would that make any empirical sense, psych psychology wise? Well, I certainly can't speak for psychology as a whole. These are just sort of my thoughts and opinions about self knowledge. But yes, to me, it does it does make total sense. That um, I don't know. I I remember when I was uh, when I was sixteen, I was going to go and fly to uh, to see my father in uh, in South Africa, and the day before, uh, I was um, jogging, uh, running through the woods, and uh, I leapt off some rocks because uh, I was feeling very Batman-y uh, onto what I thought were leaves, but unfortunately, it was a thin layer of leaves covering a bunch of rocks, and I twisted mm. my ankle. 
And I don't know if you've ever twisted your ankle, but the way it works is weird. Uh, it's like it doesn't really hurt that much at the time. You're like, oh, that's kind of painful. And you get home. And then your leg begins to, your foot begins to swell, your ankle begins to swell, and then the real pain kicks in. And this happened once too when I, I jumped into some water that I thought was deeper and turned out to be shallower. And in my experience with culture as a whole, <laughs> but um, uh, I hurt my knee and it didn't hurt at the time. Same thing happened when I was dancing on New Year's Eve when I was 22. Uh, I went down for a particularly spectacular disco travolta move and didn't come back up very well and mm. uh, hurt my knee and it didn't really hurt that much at the time but you know later oh my god it was unbelievable same thing happened i once cracked my uh, the only time i've ever injured a bone i cracked my forearm falling off a bike when i was about 25 and uh, again I, I biked home and i was like wow i'm surprised i thought that would hurt more and then it's like oh like half an hour later it's like oh that's what that's the pain that's the pain i was expecting and mm -hmm. so the, the shocks that occur at the time uh, the body tends to go into protective mode, and I think the same thing happens with the mind. The mind is just another part of the body. It goes into a protective mode, and uh, I think this is particularly true when you're in a situation of humiliation, because if you're, and I, you know, the details, you're certainly welcome to talk about them if you want, but uh, if you were in a situation of humiliation, then I think it's very common for the mind to shut down the emotions, because it's if you've been humiliated by someone and then you in a sense go crying to that person they're most like they're more likely to humiliate you even more or again if that makes any sense i think not so much humiliation for my experience as it is uh people or parents who claim to love and listen but then when you really need them to listen they don't want any part of it a mother who says, oh, I love you so much. Tell me everything. I'm always there for you. But as soon as you start to hit as or for me, I, as soon as I started to hit adolescence and I started to have all these feelings that may come from me being adopted a month after I was born and other issues, as soon as darkness came in, oh, I don't want to hear about that dark stuff. No, no, no dark stuff. You know, so, so, right. so be so vulnerable, but don't be vulnerable in a way that makes me at all upset. Yeah. And right. if you'd like, it's really quick. I can just read very briefly just the uh, lyrics that had brought this up. And, and there is two curse words. Is that all right? Uh, it's totally fine. OK, not a problem. So uh, it's in the back off or in the back off the side far away is a place where I hide, where I stay, tried to say, tried to ask. I needed to all alone by myself. Where were you? How could I ever think it's funny how everything that's for it wouldn't change is different now? Just like you would always say, we'll make it through. Then my head fell apart. And where were you? How could I? ever think it's funny how everything you swore would never change is different now like you said you and me make it through didn't quite fell apart where the fuck were you so right there was that and then at the beginning of the next song which is kind of similar and i'd never realized that it's uh with a lot of the philosophy things i'm learning about uh what happens with parents how this may strike a chord as well. Uh, the second song, just stating, I listened to the words he'd say, but in his voice I heard decay, the plastic face forced to, be, to portray all the insides left cold and gray. There is a place that still remains. It eats the fear, it eats the pain. The sweetest price will, ha sweetest price will have to pay the day the whole world went away. So yeah, very melancholy and sadness, but so much of uh, what helped me get through that sadness was this this music and it 
looking back and, and again I, I don't know if that's what it's called uh intellectualizing it all and not feeling it but maybe that's maybe it was a cry to my parents you know look you're not listening <laughs> and then when they bring it up well let's take you to a christian therapist to to try to normalize and i don't know i'm just kind of rambling i just wanted to get your opinion on it though which you've provided so <laughs> now did uh just <clears throat> Sorry, did Trent Reznor, does he write those lyrics? Yes, he. Trent Reznor is Nine Inch Nails. He does everything. Only when he would be on tour would he bring, have other people, but uh, all the music and everything was is done by just himself. And I, to put it lightly, was obsessed with that band from the age of 13 to, uh, I would say, 26, 27. That was my identity. That was my false self, all of the, uh, from what I understand so far of the false self all of my shirts were nine inch nails and everything that was me so and it's probably i'm sure that was a, a way of uh trying to express the pain and sadness but uh if, of course well I had let me um <laughs> sorry uh he uh he um uh, he was basically talking about an absent person in his life right in in these lyrics where were you uh this kind of thing right yeah all right. Michael Trent Reznor was born in Mercer, Pennsylvania, the son of blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. After his parents divorced, he lived with his maternal grandparents while his sister, Tara, lived with their mother. Hmm. Doesn't that tell you a lot? Yeah. And funny thing. His mother, never... his mother was willing to take his sister, but not him. He was rejected by his mother. Wow. He was rejected by his mother. And I was rejected by both my mothers. Right. And you see these, these vibrations, these communications, um, uh, this is from his experience to your experience. This is, this is the hands, hands under the table, right? Yeah. We're all taught to snarl at each other over the table, but we can hold hands under the table. And I think that music is the way that people communicate their experiences. He was rejected by his mother. I mean, how agonizing would that have been? He was, in a sense, abandoned. During the five years following the re release of The Downward Spiral, Reznor struggled with depression, social anxiety disorder, and the death of his grandmother, who raised him during this period of intense grief. Reznor began abusing alcohol and other drugs. He eventually became addicted to alcohol and cocaine. This is all bomb in the brain stuff. I don't know if you've seen any of that, but... Yes, um, uh, I'm, I'm the one I had brought it up to pre re uh, recently that I had uh, helped bring that into the group therapy I've been going oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. for okay, sorry. sorry about that. Not a problem. Now, um, I don't know anything about his grandparents. Uh, when my mother went to Germany for surgeries and my brother went to stay with relatives in England, I, was, I stayed with a friend of mine's grandparents and uh, this guy and, and it was a very strange summer um, I mean the, the, the grandmother was ill and I think I was 12 or so and uh, it was uh, I'll get into it this another time perhaps but it was a very strange summer I remember extremely vividly but I also remember a great distance from the, the old people and one thing that Trent Reznor said uh, this is a long time ago this is in 1994 uh, he, said, uh, he said I don't know why I want to do these things other than my desire to escape from small-town USA, to dismiss the boundaries, to explore. It isn't a bad place where I grew up, but there was nothing going on but the cornfields. My life experience came from watching movies, watching TV, and reading books, and looking at magazines. 
And when your fucking culture comes from watching TV every day, you're bombarded with images of things that seem cool, places that seem interesting, people who have jobs and careers and opportunities. None of that happened where I was. You, you're almost taught to realize it's not for you. Now, what's missing from this description of his childhood? His parents. Well, not just his parents, but people as a whole. There was nothing going on but the cornfields. My life experience came from watching movies, watching TV and reading books and looking at magazines. That is isolation, right? Because his life experience should be, you know, I played with my granddad and my grandmother taught me how to make a quiche and, you know, all this, I don't know, whatever, right? But he said that there's, there's no people in his history, in, in this description of it. It's just him and the media, right? Mm-hmm. <sighs> no, it's quite illuminating. I, I hadn't, of course, again, a lot of this philosophy is uh, still consuming it like crazy. And I hadn't reevaluated uh, his past since I've gained a lot of this knowledge, but that is very, very illuminating. Um, to record the downward spiral, sorry, just let me just say, but to record the downward spiral, Trent Reznor rented and moved into 1,000, sorry, 10,050 Silo Drive Mansion, the site of the 1969 Manson family murders. He built a studio space in the house, which he renamed Le Pig, after the word that was scrawled on the front door in Sharon Tate's blood by her murderers. Yeah, he was. I don't know if you know that story. That this point. was um, she was pregnant yep. and she was killed by Manson and his gang, and they scrawled uh, "pig," I think, uh, and and all of this. So this is where he chose to live, where a mother and her child, her unborn child, had been murdered. This is where he chose to to live and and to record. Wow! Anyone just, you're fascinated it, it with. Look, sorry, anyone you're fascinated with, um, learn about their childhood. That's your fascination, is the, uh, is the synchronicity between childhoods. I, I guarantee it. I guarantee that. Anyone you're fascinated with, learn about their childhoods, and they have great lessons for you. That's it's it's amazing, <laughs> the, those correlations, as well as now that uh, I am feeling a lot of these things, certain things that are violent and stuff, it, it's a lot it's a lot harder for me to watch are things that would, I, I had numbed myself before, you know, it, it's like, I feel them. Even you just described that. I knew that about Trent Reznor. And when I was younger, it was like, you know, who cares, whatever, you know, or cool or whatever. Now it's just like, Oh my goodness. To even be around that. It's just, uh, it's disgusting actually. But, um, a song but, I listen uh, to a lot, my... which I would recommend, sorry to interrupt a song. I listen to a lot, which I would recommend, uh, uh, it's uh, called Coming Back to Life by Pink Floyd. Uh, and I won't sing it because it's a beautiful song and you should hear the, the real guys do it. But uh, the lyrics are, where were you when I was burned and broken while the days slipped by from my window watching? And where were you when I was hurt and I was helpless? Because the things you say and the things you do surround me while you were hanging yourself on someone else's words, dying to believe in what you heard. I was staring 
straight into the shining sun. Lost in thought and lost in time while the seeds of life and the seeds of change were planted. Outside, the rain fell dark and slow while I pondered on this dangerous but irresistible pastime. I took a heavenly ride through our silence. I knew the moment had arrived for killing the past and coming back to life. And I, I think, I mean, I think Pink Floyd has just astoundingly great lyrics. Uh, and um, I think that the lyrics are, I mean, I think the music is great. And it's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful song. I think it goes a bit fast towards the end, sort of pointlessly. But I really liked, um, uh, I liked how it describes, I mean, I, I, I know people always think it's about a lover, but I always think it's, I always first think it's about childhood and then really, you know, uh, say that it's about, uh, it's not about lovers, it's about, it's about childhood, right? Like, um, anyway, so uh, when he's saying, well, you were hanging yourself on someone else's words, that's a mother who's distracted by uh, a boyfriend or a lover and is unable to spend time with her son. Ringo Starr, who was an only child, and he said once to his mother, I wish that I had a brother or sister so that I would have someone to talk to when it was raining. And um, so anyway, uh, just you might want to ponder that. But if you... And, and uh, Ringo Starr had a, a terrifying childhood. Uh, he, he was sick and spent like a year in hospital. And this is back in the day when mothers weren't allowed to see their children in hospital because it was considered to be too upsetting for them. And he was, I think this happened two times in his childhood uh, where this occurred for him. And uh, anyway, so I just sort of wanted to, uh, to point this out. It's, uh, the, the obsessions that we have are the, the cries of our own childhood that other people have been honest enough to hint at. They almost never write about them directly. Uh, they always cover them up uh, in some way or another, but in a sense that makes it even more powerful when it connects with us. So that would be, um, uh, that would be my, uh, that would be my suggestion. I appreciate that. I've never really, I'd never really gotten into Pink Floyd too often. I, I respect their work and I actually have most of their work because uh, one of my other obsessions growing up was uh, collecting music, even if I hadn't listened to it all. But I will definitely put that on my to listen to. Um, but there's one other quick, uh, somewhat unrelated uh, thing I wanted to bring up and lend credence to one of your uh, theories in one of your earlier prod podcasts about conspiracy theorists. And uh, with the recent um, 10th anniversary, 9-11, which I'm not going to get really big into, um, and that I have been exposed to a lot of the architects and engineers' empirical evidence, just showing at least the official story I don't agree with. Now, getting to your theory is while at work, I see all this patriotic hoopla and everything about the whole 10th anniversary, and I would get so enraged and like you described in the earlier podcast about conspiracy theorists, it shouldn't matter that much, you know, like about the JFK, it shouldn't care that much unless you had someone, you know, family member or friend who died in that, which I, I didn't. So uh, looking at it with new eyes, I realized the similarity is when I was a lot younger, say the late, uh, eight, nine, 10 or early teens that, uh, if I ever got in an argument, especially with my mother, or I got in trouble, and I knew logically for a fact, 100%, that I was right, there was, even if I tried to explain myself, what I got back was, don't you dare talk back. But if I knew, I know I'm right. I know I'm right. If I continued, 
if it was still, then it would be the threat of violence. It'd be the threat of getting hit, maybe getting picked up and thrown by a father and getting the air knocked out of you. And you shouldn't have pissed off your father. But I, I'm starting to see that correlation, you know, that uh, the reason I'm getting so angry is not because of the 9-11, the truth or whatever, is that it's just it's a complete emotional correlation to the unprocessed trauma with my parents. So I just wanted to lend that credence to your theory. I agree with that theory, even though I am highly interested in a lot of the information out there. I try to go at it with an empirical scientific mind, but uh, I do agree with that theory. Right, right. And um, there's another song. Um, again, this is, uh, I, I don't know the answer to this. So if anybody does know, well, they can, we can test the theory live. You can see in the chat room. Uh, I don't know if you know, this is a song by Imogen Heap called Hide and Seek. Uh, it's, oh, I um, love that song so much. I knew that you would love that song if you'd heard it, and I will tell you why, <laughs> if you like. Okay. So, uh, uh, again, I'm not going to sing it, because, I mean, there's a few songs I it can sing. It makes me okay, cry. It's not one. Yeah, it's it a beautiful song. It made me song. cry the first time I heard it. Yep, and uh, it's an incredibly powerful song. Uh, so let's let's have a look at it and see. Uh, and, again, I don't know the answer to this, so if anybody knows, we'll we'll find out. So the song goes, where are we? What the hell is going on? The dust has only just begun to form crop circles in the carpet, sinking feeling. Spin me round again and rub my eyes. This can't be happening. When busy streets a mess with people would stop to hold their heads heavy. Hide and seek trains and sewing machines all those years. They were here first. So for me, the, the where are we is an indication of uh, just something that is disorienting in early childhood. Well, why do I say early childhood? Because she's talking about crop circles on the carpet. Crop circles on the carpet are where furniture has been moved, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because, I mean, if you've moved furniture, uh, you know, you see these little holes in the carpet or there are circles in the carpet if there's something round sitting on the carpet. Why does furniture generally get moved in a situation that is disorienting for young people? Well, because there's been a divorce, right? This can't be happening. Hide and seek. Trains and sewing machines... Uh, trains would be a symbol of manhood and sewing machines would be a symbol of femininity. So father and mother, all those years, they were here first. Well, of course, children understand that, that adults were here first, right? So they were here first and then they had me as a baby. Oily marks appear on walls where pleasure moments hung before the takeover, the sweeping insensitivity of this still life. So that to me is pictures that have been taken down from the wall. Right, because there's, um, it's a little bit lighter where pictures are if you've been in a sunny room, right? As, or, or sorry, it's, it's usually a little bit darker because the sun has faded the, the, the paint around where the walls are. So to a kid, it probably looks oily. Oily marks appear on walls where pleasure moments hung before the takeover. Uh, pleasure moments are the, the happiness that a kid takes looking at pictures on the wall. The sweeping insensitivity of this still life. The pictures move, they don't care, and so on. Blood and tears, hearts, I mean, this is um, a divorce. This is a couple that's been fighting. And then uh, the, the, the mother is sitting there talking to the, the child and explaining the, uh, is explaining the divorce. So she says, hmm, what you say? Hmm, that you only meant well? Well, of course you did. You say that it's all for the best? Well, isn't that what parents say when they kid getting divorced? It's all for the best? Of course it is. Oh, what did you say? That it's just what we need? You decided that. You decided this, not me. You did, so it's telling what, what the, the mother is saying to the child, well, it's all for the best. It's what we need as a family and this and that. And the kid is saying, 
You. You decided this. Random Ransom notes keep falling out your mouth. Mid-sweet talk, newspaper word, cutouts. Speak no feeling. No, I don't believe you. You don't care a bit. You don't care a bit. Because the mother is justifying and explaining the divorce. And the child doesn't feel empathy because the mother is justifying and explaining it to her. And you can go a lot into that song, but that to me is what it's all, uh, that's what it's all about. Sorry, let me just, uh, and again, and to me that's very clear, uh, but that, that's what the song is about. But let's see. Somebody's written, Imogen Heap says, oh, it's about her parents' divorce. Okay, good. So, yeah, hey, look at that, managed to get one. And so this is why the song is so powerful to people. Uh, and and also, um, the, 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 um, the, the uh, shoot, what's the phrase that, that is used uh, when they merge the voices together with the electronics? I can't remember. There's a tone something or other. Vo- vo- vocoder. Vocoder, yeah. So the vocoder is because I think a child's voice sounds funny to the child because there is a still growing. Their voice is kind of shrill uh, in their own ears and so on. And um, also it could be that uh, if a child is covering up her ears because she doesn't want to hear something, i.e. her parents fighting, then voices are going to sound strange and distorted to her, her own voice included. And I think that's another reason why it is, um, uh, it is such a powerful song. And also the only real music, music that's there other than the voice is a little bit of what sounds like uh, a child's toy, you know, like a little wind-up ballerina toy or whatever. Uh, and so I think that it is, uh, yeah. So so that to me is a is a very very powerful uh, song about divorce. And the the fact that it's it doesn't say my parents divorce, right? Is um, uh, is in a sense makes it even more powerful because it bypasses defenses. Uh, but everyone thinks you know it's about a lover or whatever. But to me, it's it's very clear uh, that um, uh, that it's about. Uh, a, 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 a child, a young, three or four years old, incredibly disoriented and angry about a divorce. So anyway, I mean, this is, I think that you can do a lot with, with songs that you find very passionate and very powerful. Uh, I think that it's, it's well worth looking at the childhoods and I bet you you'll find a lot in common uh, with uh, the people who wrote them. That's a fantastic insight that I'd never uh, had thought of uh Moving or uh, reviewing, and uh, I always have so- seeked out songs that make me feel true emotion. Of I know I like the song because I feel it, and it's not really listening to the words, but just feeling that. But uh, I now uh, I-, I appreciate the insight because I'm going to start going through a lot of the uh, music that makes me feel that way. I mean, it's just amazing that you brought up another one of my favorite songs with Image and Heap. So uh, I really I'm sure appreciate that. that if you- uh, yeah, if you and I have similar childhoods, then we are going to, if exposed to, we're going to like similar music. And um, I mean, the other thing that I would say is that people who've gone through difficult childhoods tend to be into a wider variety of musical styles. Um, that's because of the ecosystem stuff, which we can perhaps talk about another time. But that's just something else that I've noticed. They tend to have more eclectic tastes and um, a tough way. Like you go look at their al- album collection and it's like, holy crap. <laughs> You got everything from John yeah. Lee Hooker to Britney Spears and everything in between or whatever, right? That's so, me. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that. That's you too, right? Yeah, that would make sense. Because there's oh fragmentation, goodness, personality have... fragmentation that occurs, which means that we can be exposed to a wider variety of stuff. Awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate uh, your insights on that. And uh, thank you for everything you do and continue to do. 
Thank you. That's a great conversation. And I would also suggest, I mean, I've, I've, I know we've sort of done this movie thing, though it's a little hard to arrange. What I'd like to do also is um, I'm not really getting exposed to much new music at the moment. Uh, I mean, listening to the radio is pretty hard because a lot of it is pretty junky. And that's just natural because the good stuff survives long enough that later it all seems like good in the past. But I'd like to get together with people uh, on in the FDR chat, people who are knowledgeable about music, and get exposed to some new bands and some new music. Uh, so if you're ever interested in doing that, you know, just we just YouTube it, right? Just listen to this. Here are the lyrics. What do you think? And just share some new music. I think that would just be fantastic because uh, I'm I'm yearning for some new stuff, but I really don't get exposed to it too much. I'll get right, right. on that because that's what I do. Fantastic. Thanks, man. Okay. Yeah, music is. Thanks, um, yeah, music is one of the most beautiful things in life, and uh, I, uh, I I absolutely envy uh, people who have uh, just fantastic um, musical talent. I think it's just uh, an amazing. And uh, yeah, music Monday, new music Mondays. Maybe we can maybe we can give that a shot. I'd really like to. I'd really like to um, because uh, when I do get exposed to new music through people through FDR, I mean, I just love it. I, I just love it, and it's just been fantastic. And so um, yeah, I would really like to get more into it. All right, do we have anybody else? Hello, Seth. Hello. Can you hear me all right? Sure can. How you doing, man? Yeah, this is Sebastian from First Principles. Uh, on a recent video, you spoke about uh, the value of looking at history in an integrated way so that you're not just looking at data. So I have some observations which I, sh I wanted to share with you. It won't take five minutes of your show. I wanted to read okay. them out to you and hear what you have to think. What do you think of them? All right. In the 19th century, Nietzsche spoke about how up until that point in history, that which was known as morality was nothing but a series of after-the-fact justifications for violent institutions, such as the monarchy, the church when it was a part of the state, etc. Now, both you and Nietzsche explained the origin of the priestly class developing from the need of people with great language skills to gain power by providing a justification for those violent institutions through the manipulations of dishonest language, creating dishonest abstractions such as God, the king, the state. I wanted to include in the ranks of those classes of language-skilled justifiers the jesters, the comedians, the entertainers, and the musicians, and point to what I consider is historically the starting point of this philosophical renaissance that we are watching unfold, which is taking place during that which Doc Casey refers to as the Greater Depression, which not surprisingly, like the Renaissance, took place in Europe during the Dark Ages. That turning point for me is not only the beginning of Free Domain Radio in 2006, but also George Carlin's last HBO special, It's Bad For You, where he uses his language and comedic skills to expose the evil falsehood of the state, similarly to how you, you now use morality and your philosophical skills to apply morality to those who invented morality to control people. So that's a bit of a historical analysis that uh, that I, or observation that I'm making, I would be interested in listening to what you what you think of it. I think that's a very great. That's a great observation. Uh, the the thing that pops into my mind is uh, when I was at the National Theatre School in the late '80s, I think it was. When I was at, I, I was in um, King Lear, of course, by Shakespeare. Uh, I played. Um, uh, Gloucester, no Cornwall. Who uh, I can't remember Gloucester, the guy who who gouges out. Gloucester's eyes. Um, and one of the things that I was quite fascinated about was the fool or the jester in King Lear. 
the fool in King Lear, and Shakespeare doesn't actually write a lot of fools. He writes a lot of foolish people, but he doesn't write a lot of fools. The fool in King Lear is very interesting because the fool is the only person who is able to tell the king the truth about who the king is without getting killed, right? Because the, the king is this vainglorious, narcissistic, sociopathic monster uh, who prefers form over substance. So he's got a love test for his daughters. And the one who really loves him isn't that great with words, and she gets banished. And the two that don't really love him are really great with words, and so they get rewarded. And, of course, all the vile things in the world happen after that. But the gesture in the court is the only one who's able to tell the truth. And I'm sort of reminded of Stephen Colbert did a, um, I think it was a White House dinner, where he just said the most astounding things about the Bush administration, and everyone was laughing. And so, uh, yeah, I think that comedy is a way of telling people a truth that, if you didn't make jokes about it, would be uh, extremely dangerous. I don't know that it's that great a way of doing it, because people tend to laugh about it and then forget about it. But or laugh at it and then forget about it. But I think that comedy has to some degree developed as a way of disarming people that you're making fun of to the point where they're not just going to kill you. Right. I, I, I remember the, the podcast from a couple of days ago where you were still mulling over the purposes of, of comedy when uh, with your experiences with Isabella. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, comedy. I mean, I love comedy. Uh, I wish I got to see it more live. Uh, I have just some great memories of seeing it live. But um, it is fascinating to figure out what what the purpose of comedy is. And since I've already done a podcast on it, I won't repeat those theories. But um, it's fascinating because my daughter is trying to figure out what comedy is. She's fascinated. It's She's completely fascinated by what is funny and what is not. And, of course, did I don't want to tell her the, because I could be wrong. Sorry, go ahead. Did, did you check out the we, – we have a comedian in our ranks uh, on Freedom Aiden Radio, uh, David David Kopp, put up a video of Neanderthal comedy and uh, – and I, and I think everyone should watch it. It's pretty funny. It's, I haven't looked at it yet, but it's sort of on my list to watch. And um, yeah, so uh, I, I think it's uh, I, I think that comedy has uh, it, it is a way of telling truth to power. But unfortunately, it's telling truth to power in a way. That, I mean, it's partly like politics in that you tell truth to power because you want, want power to be reformed, but political power cannot be reformed. So I think it's a bit of a fool's quest. In the same way that I think the politics is a bit of a fool's quest for changing the nature of the violent mono monopoly we call the state. So I think that it's a way of relieving frustration or feeling that you've spoken truth to power. But I don't think that speaking truth to power matters much. Because power, I mean, in the way that we're talking about it, is coercion. And coercion does not bow to language. <laughs> except through philosophy, except in the long run through child raising. So I hope that helps. Thanks, Steph. All right. Thanks, man. Great, uh, great, great comment. Great question. Great, uh, great idea. All right. Do we got ourselves anybody else? Yes. Hi, Steph. Uh, hey, I got a question. Hey. Uh, in one of the podcasts, uh, you said something like that: uh, that children that did not listen to their parents uh, when they were young end up pretty broken, and uh, they have serious problems later. And uh, I was wondering. Could I'm sorry. You did you say children who do? Sorry, to interrupt. I just want to make sure. I, Sorry, I said that children who do not listen to their parents? Yes, like they rebel. Well, that's not quite the same as not listening. I mean, I hope that my daughter listens to me, and I hope that I have sensible things to say to her. So, um, But there are times when she doesn't listen to me, and there are times when she's right not to listen to me. 
because I'm making a mistake or telling her something that is not consistent with the general standards of behavior that we have. So, uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it as not listening to parents breaks children, but, uh, please go on. If I just want to put that caveat in. No, that was pretty, it, pretty much it. But sorry, what was your question? Uh, what, what did you mean by that, that they have problems later in life? If um, well, again, or... I, I'm not, I can tell you what I think about the issue as a whole, but I don't recall that uh, that uh, segment in particular. But uh, certainly, I mean, this is straight out of Compton. No, <laughs> straight out of Richard Dawkins, who I believe is the polar opposite of Compton. But um, Richard Dawkins has a sort of theory. He says, well, why are children so susceptible, in a sense, or so obedient to their parents' belief systems? And it's because if you live in the forest and then your parents say, don't eat the red berries – we assume that's for some good reason. Don't eat the red berries because they're poisonous. And so if you don't listen to your parents and you eat the red berries, then you're going to get sick or you're going to die or whatever. Right? So it's a negative thing. And so children are pr very prone to listen to their parents. And I think that one of the very one of the most important things that parents need to cultivate is to encourage the child uh, to disagree with the parents and to feel comfortable doing so. Um, it makes parenting a bit of a challenge at times. But it's really worthwhile to do so. Um, my daughter's like a she's like a cobra. She's <laughs> like a cobra. She she you know if I as I said before if I'm saying something wrong or I I'm telling a story and I skip a bit because I'm distracted. Ah no right. She <laughs> she strikes. She fastens the fangs of truth on the quivering mongoose of error. <laughs> oh my God, this is not my day for metaphors. But um, yeah, so encouraging disagreement is very very important. Um, I certainly never want to be any kind of infallible authority to her. Uh, and so, and also, of course, explaining, you know, why there are certain rules rather than just imposing them, all of these kinds of things. I think that's just parenting, not even 101. It's like parenting preschool. But when societies are founded on falsehoods, then if you don't listen to those falsehoods as a child, you tend to be in very dangerous territory indeed. Very dangerous territory indeed. The human farm is fundamentally not even political, it is fundamentally ideological. So if you can lie to people in a convincing way, they become dependent upon your lies. And then you're going to encourage them to have children, of course, right? Because the tribe that has the most children is the one that tends to end up dominating, at least when you were in a you know, sword fist warrior culture, not so much with uh, more technology, but, you know, the tribe that bred the most uh, tended to succeed. And this is why you have this bizarre paradox, this completely strange and, <laughs> dare I say, unholy paradox, that the Catholic Church has never been particularly out of favor with war and yet considers itself the ultimate protector of human rights by being against abortion. Well, the reason that they're against abortion is they want more Catholics. I mean, it's, it's I mean, it's fundamentally, it's a it's a biological farming mechanism to cause the Catholic cattle to breed more. Because if they were such staunch defenders of human rights uh, and and of life itself, then clearly, I would think, an adult life would be of higher priority to you than a blastocyst or you know a couple of cells here and there in uh, a woman's uh, uh, <laughs> dark dungeon of fertility. 
Uh, but this is not the reality. I mean, they, I don't. Uh, I mean, they were they were fine uh, with Hitler. They they did not oppose war. They have never excommunicated anyone for going to war or starting wars or being involved in wars or volunteering for wars. They're completely fine with wars, which is of course the death of millions of adults. But they very much want to protect Catholic uh, fetuses because Catholic fetuses grow into Catholic babies. Uh, which brings more money to Catholicism and that grow up into Catholic adults, which bring more money to Catholicism. I mean, if you look at the Mormon church, it's 10%. 10% of the gross income of people there. So, and you know, $50,000, $5,000 a year. $5,000 a year is quite a lot of money <laughs> to be getting from people. And so people who are in control of a particular ide ideology and have people encased or entrapped within that ideology – are very much into protecting their investments and growing their investments. You know, the, the dividends are enormous when you propagandize someone. And so, but all of that rests upon unquestioning acceptance, brain-dead belief. Because there's no particular ideology that can, like particularly within religion, there's no particular religion that can survive any kind of rational scrutiny, even a little tiny bit, right? even a little tiny bit. So, I mean, the, the sort of higher power, God made the universe, all that really abstract spiritual stuff, that's one thing. But any particular religion, you know, say, well, Catholicism is true because of, I don't know, the Catholic text, the Pope, and the, but every, I mean, almost every religion has some sort of spiritual leader, so why would yours be more important than anyone else? So that kind of stuff, right? So all of that stuff is really fragile, really delicate. And so children who disagree with or criticize or question or oppose or disobey their parents are directly threatening the income of the people in charge. And so it's usually quite dangerous to do that. And it's one of the reasons why there are strong fear inhibitions about questioning or opposing whatever dominant paradigm is floating around, particularly if it's quite easy to to get rid of intellectually. And this is the thing that I dislike about ideologies so much. I dislike about ideologies. And by ideologies, I simply mean conclusions without philosophy. I dislike ideologies so much because there are very few adults who were not raised religious who wake up one morning and say, hey, you know what would be great? I should become a Catholic or a Jew, or a Muslim, or whatever. I mean, I would imagine that is so extraordinarily rare as to be virtually non-existent. And so it's almost impossible to proselytize someone into becoming religious. Maybe you can proselytize people into changing religions. You know, there's the Cat Stevens <laughs> thing, or whatever. But religion has to be grown from the womb onwards. It can't be reasoned. You can't reason people into religion. You have to indoctrinate the children. The falser the belief, the more it has to get its mental claws and hooks into children as early as possible. The more irrational the doctrine, the more it has to corrupt and undermine the minds of children. It has to attack the helpless, you see? Um, ideology is an old sick lion. It cannot hunt the healthy. It can only hunt the weak and the vulnerable, and that means children, always, always and forever. And my challenge to ideologies has always been the same, and it's something I accept with my conclusions as well, which is, you know, if you're 
a Christian and you really believe in Christianity and you really believe that God answers prayers and God talks, talks to people and so on, then let your child discover that for himself or herself. Do not take the child to Sunday school. Why? Because God should be talking to the child, not some guy in a robe. So you let your child discover religiosity on their own. That's what you do. You don't take them to get baptized. You don't take them to Sunday school. You don't take them to church. You can leave a Bible lying around the house if you want. Maybe they'll pick it up. Maybe they won't. But you do not indoctrinate your children into things that, that are true. All good education avoids conclusions and teaches only methodology. Teaches only methodology. A math teacher is not a math teacher if he's simply getting children to recite equations and their answers. Or getting to people to write down an incomprehensible set of symbols and then think that he's taught them something about that. About how to think, about how to reason, about how to figure things out for themselves. We understand all teachers do not teach conclusions if they're at all teachers. They teach methodology. Religion is a conclusion. Jesus saves. Well, he saves, then he shoots, then he scores. <laughs> but uh, religion is a conclusion. Anarchism is a conclusion. Atheism is a conclusion. And what you don't do is you don't teach people conclusions. You don't teach children conclusions. You teach them how to think. But you don't teach them what to think. And if the world could do that for the next five years, there would be almost nothing left of false beliefs. Almost nothing left. So I hope that uh, clarifies things a little bit. Yes, thank you. All righty. Hi, Steph. Hello. Uh, anybody else? I, I'm willing to talk if nobody else is waiting. Step on up. All right. Um, for the last two months, I've been struggling with uh, uh, getting a job, and this happens every time I need to get one. Um, actually, you could say I've been struggling with getting a job uh, for much longer than that. Uh, even before I quit my last job, um, and uh, it it's very frustrating because I if I if I care for my well-being, I would uh, I would go and and uh, and do what I need to do because now I'm at the point where uh, if I don't get one by October 15th, uh, my my parents want me to move back home. Um, yeah. Can you hear me on? Sorry, yes, what? I'm not sure what your question is. Oh, did, did you? Uh, okay, so you, did you hear that, all that? I did hear that you were having trouble finding a job, and if you don't get a job by, was it October 15th, you're going to move back in with your parents? Right, okay, so the question is, um, well, I'm just trying to figure out why I'm um, why I'm doing this. It, it's like, uh, it's dysfunctional behavior. I, I quit my job like uh, at the beginning of, of July and it's now the middle of September. 
So I was curious. Uh, I, I made a post on the on the forum. I'm sorry. I'm still not sure what your question is. Okay. Okay. Um, why do? Okay. Okay. The question is like, how, how do I uh, motivate myself? To get a job. Yeah. And and why am I not? Yeah. But. And uh, why why do you need to motivate yourself to get a job? Um. If I don't. <clears throat> Sorry, we're going to have to just move this forward a little bit, just because there's a lot of dead air. I'm just curious. I mean, why do you need to? Why why not just move back in with your parents? That would be. Terrible. Well, maybe, but it's certainly not more terrible than looking for a job, right? I mean, just statistically or, or I guess, factually, right? I mean, if, if you are, um, if you're on a raft floating down a river and you say, I don't want to go where the river goes, but you're not jumping off and swimming, then clearly you do want to go where the river goes, right? Yeah, that that's really. But again, I'm not criticizing. I'm just pointing out that the facts are that that you you don't view that as the worst thing, right? Yeah, yeah, that that's really frustrating. Um, for some reason, I notice I feel very strongly right now. I'm sorry, you feel what? Uh, very strongly. And what do you feel? The. Mo- <laughs> The moment I opened my mouth and uh, I started to feel fear and sadness. Go on. And uh, and my heart is pounding. And can I tell you why I think that is? Sure, go, go, go ahead. Well, because I'm not applying any pressure to you. I'm not saying get yourself together, go out there, look for a job, find a job, get moving with your life, but I'm not, right? I'm not applying any external pressure. Right? Yeah. I'm just saying, well, why do you need to make yourself get a job? That's just curiosity, right? Right, right. Right. I, I uh, could, could be, I, I put pressure on myself internally and then, you know, then, I, then uh, I rebel against that. And I'm not maybe I'm not curious enough with uh, myself. Go on. Um. Uh, yeah, maybe it's like a, it, it's a, a breakdown of communication with parts of myself, with with my ecosystem. I definitely, I definitely feel a lot less connected to myself <clears throat> than I did. Go on. Um, it's so frustrating. I, I definitely, I want to be connected with myself. Right. Go on. Um, 
Uh, um, I'm shaken. <laughs> I, I don't know. I can't. I, I'm. I'm shaking. I've gone over this in my mind repeatedly. I've talked about it with uh, with my friend, like repeatedly. And you haven't had any uh, success, I guess, right? In yeah. terms of dealing with it? Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. How many people in your life have been genuinely invested in your success? Have wanted you to succeed, have helped you succeed, have done everything within their power to help you succeed in whatever it is you want to do? Nobody. I, my parents have only claimed to be invested in my success and they, they say they would do anything for me. They would, they, they claimed that they would pay for my college and they would get behind in anything that, that I, that I wanted to do, but that's not true because I know that they, like, for example, my mom is just like, I think you should go to school or something like that. I don't want to go to college. I don't think that's for me. I'm not willing to, to toe the line. But that you know, they're not. No, but no, but I. There's nobody in my life who has ever been invested in my success and, and the path that I want to go on. And and my 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 mom pretends that she doesn't have enough money. My I well, let me, okay. Let me let me sorry. Let me ask you a, a sort of slightly related question. Okay. How, are there people in your life or in your history who would? feel any kind of relief or satisfaction if you succeeded? I'm sorry, I put that backwards. Oh. Who would feel any kind of relief or satisfaction if you say, if you failed? Oh, um, yeah, my, my, my mom would feel really relieved because then I would move back in with them. Right, so people, people who give you advice and this, I, I think this is pretty automatic, right? I'm, I could be wrong, of course, like in everything, but I think this is pretty automatic. So people who give you advice, if you do the opposite, they are invested in your failure. And, and this doesn't mean that they're bad people. It's just, it's natural. It's natural. So if somebody says to you, to have any kind of success in this life, you need to go to college. And if you say, no, there's this guy down the road named Steve Jobs, we want to start a business in our garage. Yeah. <laughs> that, person, that person who's given you the advice to go to college is going to be invested in your failure. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that they're going to sabotage you or they're going to want you to, but they are invested in your failure. Mm -hmm. And so when we take a path that is in opposition to the advice we have received in our life, the parts of us who were formed by that advice are going to be invested in our failure. And the people around us who have given us this opposing advice are going to be invested in our failure. Right. Right. You know. And this, this, sorry, this can occur to the point where people will just lie. 
So, uh, so for instance, like uh, let's just take a macro example. I mean, because so we can take it out of the personal for just a second. Sometimes it can be easier to see that way. Okay. So, for how long have libertarians been saying the bigger the government, the worse the problems? You said three to four hundred years, conservatively, right? And the majority of society has taken the opposite approach, right? They've said no. The bigger the government. The more we solve problems, the better things become, right? Now, this is clearly, it has turned out that the libertarians were right all along, right? The objectivists were right. The libertarians were right. The anarchists are even more right if they are into property rights and the non-aggression principle. But we've been right all along, right? And so everybody who has pursued big government as a solution to problems is now enormously invested in the failure of libertarianism. In other words, they will now say that big government is failing because there's too much small government, <laughs> right? Which is what they say about deregulation, right? That the biggest government in the world is a failure because it wasn't big enough in certain areas. Now, deregulation is a complete lie, and we don't have to sort of get into the details about that now, but uh, you can read your Tom Woods for that. And... Libertarians are invested in the failures of statism. We are. Right. I mean, we, we are. And it's not because we want, are invested. you know, all of this disastrous to occur in the world. It's just, you know, like somebody who says smoking will give you lung cancer doesn't want people to get lung cancer. In fact, he wants people to not get lung cancer. And so when you're paralyzed in your life, what... Again, this is my approach. It may work for you, it may not, but I think there's value in it. If you're paralyzed in your life, first place I would look at, who in my life benefits from me failing? Who in my life benefits from me failing? My family. I, I, don't, have, I don't have anybody but except like my family and, and one good friend. Right. And my, my friend is definitely on my side. Right. Well, that's good. And so um, if it's your family, that's, that's tough, right? That's very tough because they're so embedded in your head, right? Yeah, it's, it's mainly just, you know, it's my family in my head that I obviously I can't just defoo from, but I need to, to talk to them, right? Yes, absolutely. And the family in your head are more your friends, right? Because it's not your, it's not their fault that they're there, right? <laughs> then just come out of nowhere, right? So, so you can make a list. I've actually done this in my life. I did this when I was in therapy. So again, you know, if you can talk to a therapist, fantastic. But if not, I think this is still a useful thing to do. So I took the path of philosophy and self-knowledge in my life. I took that path and I took it really early. And... And so I did all of that. I read up, uh, I studied philosophy, I studied psychology, I went to therapy, I studied self-knowledge, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And that's taken my life in a particular direction. And almost nobody, oh God, almost, is that true? I can't think of anyone in my teenage life who even was even neutral about the path that I was taking. Most of them were hostile or contemptuous or oppositional and i had to hide this this is a guilty secret right philosophy is my 
you know, skanky ho in a motel down the street. And so if you, if you take, if you sort of peel off from the pack, if you peel out of the V-shaped formation of the flying geese, and you say, no, I'm not going to go for money, I'm not going to go for material success, I'm not going to go for career, I'm not going to go for these things. And that doesn't mean you can't have these things, of course, right? It just means that's not going to be how I define my value as a human being, fundamentally. But I'm going to go for self-knowledge and virtue and honestly and openly dealing with the past and standing up for what is true and what is right. Damn the consequences, damn the torpedoes. Though the sky should fall, the truth must be upheld. Right. Well, now that I am seven days, six days, six days from being 45 years old, the data is in. The data is in. Uh, because we've had, gosh, uh, 30 years to see how these, uh, this experiment works out. And um, those friends that I have some knowledge about, uh, I am enormously glad that I did what I did. I am enormously glad that I did what I did. I, I can't tell you how glad I am that I chose the path that I chose. Oh, man. It was hard, and it is still hard sometimes, but it beats any alternative that I have ever seen in this world. Yo. Okay. Hello? Hi. Hi. What was the last thing you heard? Um, I, uh, that you're enormously happy. You're yeah. Mostly glad. Uh, yeah. I mean, I I'll, I'll leave other people to you know. For me to say that it doesn't mean much, though it's true. But um, I mean, I have the best marriage that I know of. I I think I'm doing the best parenting job that I can that I can do. I have a life that I love, uh, and I have listeners that I absolutely adore. Everyone on this call, you included, being in that number. And I'm enormously proud of what we're achieving as a community and what, what is going out into the world. But I'm very aware that the people who took the opposite road, who decided against or reacted to self-knowledge and philosophy, and who, who told me openly and often with great contempt that it was a path of weakness and dysfunction. You know, that I needed philosophy because I just wasn't sure of things myself, that I was using it to prop up my diminished personality, my weakened personality, that 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 self-knowledge was narcissistic and self-absorbed and I was only focusing on myself and to the exclusion of others and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I mean, I think we've all heard these things a million times before, but there was a pretty endless litany of negative judgments about the path that I was taking. And as time has gone on and as the evidence continues to pour in for people's lives, um, they are invested in my failure. And and I'm invested in their failure. Again, it just means that given that we're going in opposite direction, like if we both desperately want to get to a town, you and I, and we go in opposite directions in the woods, and I really want to go the right direction, I'm invested in you being the wrong direction. It has to be. 
Because if you're going in the right direction, I'm going in the entirely wrong direction. I'm going deeper into the bush where there are bears and giant spiders and whatever, right? Right. So the moment that you go in an opposite direction from someone, you have to understand you're both invested in each other's failure. Right, right. Yeah, I, I understand that. Um, I'm actually... When, you, when you're talking about this, uh, of, uh, this opposition... Um, I, 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 I think about like when I think about uh, you know applying uh, to jobs and, and getting interviews and stuff I, I always have like this idea that you know I, I think maybe I'm crazy they're invested in my failure I mean I don't think they're on my side it's kind of weird like I'm getting a job from people that I like almost inevitably will hate what do you think <laughs> I'm sorry, can you just explain that a little more? Okay. Um, uh, when, I, when, I, when I go for jobs, I, it's like, yeah, I, I don't think that I can, that can jive with people. Um, well, but see, the, but that, the issue isn't that, you know, in my opinion. Again, <laughs> in my opinion, right? I'm going to say for sure. But the issue isn't whether you're going to end up with a job with people you dislike. I mean, that's almost inevitable. Oh, we've, we've talked right. about this on the show before, right? And, so and, and, all uh, entry-level jobs are with entry-level people. And anybody who's over 30 and in charge of entry-level people is a crap manager. They have to be, right? Right. I, I kind of think it's like I won't get hired because, because I am who I am. <laughs> Well, okay, but that's to say that uh, the self-knowledge truth, uh, that these are all disastrous, that these turn you into a leper, right? But this is just not yeah, true. Actually, kind of, kind no, no, look, it's not true. There are a lot, but look, are you saying that everybody who has, uh, who has pursued the truth is unemployable? Well, for that to be true, then statistically, nobody at FDR have should have a yeah. job, right? Yeah, that's true. So again, just go back to the facts, right? Yeah. It's not true. Yeah, then maybe this is the maybe I'm getting ideas uh, from the parental parts of me trying to discourage me. Maybe that's what's going on. I mean, that would be where I mean, whether it's parental or not, but I would certainly go on who's invested in you not succeeding. I mean, and you know, to take an, uh, just one one more example, I've got to get onto another caller, but just for one more example, right? So, if you are I don't know, Jehovah's Witness, right? And and your brother is Jehovah's Witness, and then he goes all atheist on your medieval hiney, right? <laughs> um, you believe that he's going to go to hell now, right? You believe that uh, he's turned away from Christ or Joseph or whatever the guy's name is. And uh, he's, you know, he's... So if he goes and he's, like, happy and all that kind of stuff, then... That's negative for you, right? Yeah, you, uh, it, your beliefs uh, go completely against. Uh... Yeah, I mean, if you're two heroin junkies in an alley shooting up, and then you decide to quit, I mean, you are in. You're quitting because you're terrified of the heroin lifestyle and you want something better. And now, yes, people can write to me and say that heroin addicts can do fine if they're on methadone and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. But just, just take the cliche, for, you know, for the, the, uh, the Sid and Nancy cliche. 
So if you quit heroin and then your life gets worse and worse and the guy who keeps doing heroin gets a life that is better and better and better and he becomes a lawyer and a chief executive and a doctor and he's happily married and he's got three kids and he's a pillar of his community and he donates to charities and he volunteers here and there and he's a shining example of everything that is good and positive. It's going to totally be, feel like bitterness towards the guy. Well, yeah, because it's like, crap, why the hell did I quit heroin if you can have this great life on heroin? Yeah. But, 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 you know, and again, this is, it, it sounds cold and it sounds, it doesn't, doesn't mean that. I really want to be clear on that. It can mean that. Like you can just be cold and hostile and whatever, right? But if you quit heroin and you, you get a great life and you get a job, you get an education, whether it's self or formal and, and you have your marriage, you have kids, whatever it is that makes you happy. And then, you know, a couple of years later, you step over this guy, you know, wasted down to 90 pounds with a needle sticking out of his arm and vomit on his lips in an alley, it's not like you're happy that happened. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not like, yay, it, you know, yeah, it's sucks more to be you, I'm great. Right? It's like your self-interest conflicts with the other person's self-interest, right? Right. Right. But it just means that um, you will probably view that with great sadness. I mean, the people who opposed my path those 30 years ago, how their lives turned up, uh, I view that with great sadness. I don't feel angry. I, I, I just, it's, it's, it's desperately sad because it can't be undone now. It's too late. Can't be changed. There's no turning back once you're that far down the road. So anyway, I just, I just wanted to like, really, if you're paralyzed, look at the forces against you. If you're having trouble swimming up a current, look at the current that's coming against you right? If you're having trouble getting back to shore, look for the riptide. Look for that which is in your mind that is invested in your failure, and I bet you that's where you'll find the source of your paralysis. Does that make any sense? I hope it does. I hope it does. And uh, yeah, keep me posted. If you can, I'll keep us posted. I hope it goes well. Okay. Uh, Thank you. Thanks. I'd like to thank the person who told me that heroin addicts can do fine if they're on methadone. Hey, who's the next caller? Who's the next caller? I believe that would be whoever just stepped over the line and asked who the next caller was. Boom. Okay. Um, yeah. so I've got one relationship question and one career question, so let me know. I'll just start with a relationship one. You can cut me off. It's too long. So <clears throat> I'm in a relationship with a girl that I very much like. She's got a lot of good qualities. She's she's pretty reasonable. Um, she's had shared podcasts. Sorry, with- was that pretty reasonable or pretty comma reasonable? Both. <laughs> Both. Good. Okay. That's, that sounds good. All right. She's reasonable. Like she, you know, she's atheist. She, you know, is interested, not like a cynical atheist. Um, she can have conversations about this kind of stuff and she's listening to podcasts and enjoys them. Um, but anyways, so I've noticed a, a trait that she has that maybe I can deal with it. Maybe I can't. Maybe I'm trying to manage her. But what happens is, I'll give you an example. Like she is terrified of flight. So... Um, she went on a flight with her brother and her brother was totally fine with flying. He didn't care. He was like, whatever, you know, flying safe. I get it. So she was really worried for her brother. What I really think is she was really anxious about flying and then made it seem like it was her brother and then tried to coddle her brother. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? And so she does that often and it's going to be problematic if we don't figure it out. Figure what out? Um, how she can go about 
not projecting her anxieties onto other people and then trying to fix the other person's anxieties, which don't really exist, which are just merely a projection of her own. Right. All right. Um, and I, don't, I mean, I'm not so sure I can fix that, but how could I facilitate best as possible to help her see that for herself? Like, and I'll give you another example. Last night, um, maybe I was, I was wrong, but I basically explicitly asked her. She was kind of tired, but who knows? I didn't know. So I said, oh, are you in the mood you know, to do it? Um, not quietly in those words, but <laughs> you in the mood to do it. I think you've got a whole lot card in the making right there. <laughs> um, I think no, that's just, just wipe a tear away. I hope that you are <laughs> grasping at least one rose petal somewhere on your body. Usually, no, I find yeah. the button as well. It was, it was not that tasteless, but the sense was, you know, I, I, it was quite obvious that I was making a request, and she cannot say no. She feels bad. All right. Well, what's the problem? Sorry, just going. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, though, because it'll it'll create resistance. What I'm saying is like, I'm oh yeah. Look, if you okay even suspect a no, then don't don't go ahead. I mean, you know that, right? Because you're just yeah. going to sow the seeds of massive resentment. So, exactly. Yeah, so she totally feels bad about saying no, and she thinks that I will be mad, which I won't. But she can't help but think. Like, what I'm thinking is I think she feels guilty for saying no. She's like a people-pleasing type person. So she'll feel guilty for saying no. And then instead of addressing that, makes it seem like I'll get mad or I react a certain way if she says no. That way, she, like, rationalizes why she can't say no. When yeah, I, I mean, you, you say the honest thing, which is uh, I'm fine if you don't want to make love. I just need to go online for a few minutes uh, so that you can solve the problem. That's but, I mean, um I said something similar to that, not quite as crass, but you know what I mean. <laughs> not quite as crass as me. Well, that's actually usually a good, uh, a good. Yeah, thing. no, but you know, like I was literally like, I'm totally like, I just wanted to make my request. Like, I want to be free to make that request, and you're totally free to say no. Like, honestly, yes, like, because you don't want to stop managing her the way that she manages other people, right? Exactly. So I'm like, no, it's fine. Like literally, and she was like, no, I can tell that you're going to be upset. I was like, I really, really won't. So I don't know how. Yeah, to- I, I won't be as upset as if we have sex and you don't want to. Yeah, yeah that's gross, right? That's just, right? Yeah. That's just nasty. Yeah, so right. how, this is, yeah, that's one, that's a characteristic that permeates all of her, you know, the, from the airplane trip. And how long have you been seven. listening to this show, my friend? Uh, gosh, I would say... Just roughly. I don't need it down to the day. Come on, a year. Show a year, okay. So why are you daring to ask me this question? Because you already know the answer. How dare you ask me this question? You know the answer, right? Is the answer that I shouldn't be in a relationship with her in the first place? That I no, her? that's not an answer. That's a conclusion. <laughs> I can't tell you that. Nobody okay. can. Okay. So the answer is, what is her childhood experience with saying no to people? Uh, well, she did tell me that her father was the... T- and here's the weird thing, though. I, I know her father, and I get... And she has... Her parents have been married for 25 years. Not to say that just because they've been together, that means it's a healthy relationship. But growing up, she would tell me about these experiences with her father, who now I can never picture him doing this. But what he would do is get right up in her face and yell at her. Basically, he would try to do the he would bully her. I mean, she knows that he'd bully her. And we talked about it. He would kind of do the get in her face, trying to intimidate you to do his will. And he wouldn't. Again, it's not like he was like, I'm going to bully this child. He would say in his mind, he thought, I know what's best for her. And then he would get frustrated when she wouldn't comply and then would go about trying to get her compliance through this manner. No, uh, wait. Okay, how do you know that? Because she told how me. How do that. you know that the how, well? Okay, but how? If she was all down with the history and she all knew everything about her history, it wouldn't be repeating itself in the present, right? There must be something that she's unaware of in her history if it's replicating to this degree in the present, right? So don't accept anything she's saying at face value. 
mm-hmm. as far as this stuff goes, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm always suspicious. It doesn't mean that I'm always right, but I'm always suspicious slash paranoid. When people say about parents or whoever, when they give the best possible interpretation for their parents' behavior. Yeah. I get always it. be skeptical. I mean, it may be true. It may be people, true. Yeah, no, people how do you know? rationalize it and make it seem like it was better than it was. Yeah, people were, oh, they did the best they could with the knowledge they had and blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he would, she would say things like uh, um, he would get so mad that he'd flip the chair that she was sitting on, and, like not with the intention of hurting her. He'd just get mad, and all of a sudden she'd be on the ground and terrified, you know? So, yeah. This is, this, is, this is something that really needs to be dealt with professionally or what? Like what's well, uh, yeah, personally, I think if yeah, I mean, if if a dad is flipping chairs and stuff, I think that's worth a trip to the therapist. I, I believe. I mean, he had uh, gotten angry. Particularly man. if there's particularly if there's denial, right? If there's if there's a mind reading of intentions from the point of view of a child for things that happened twenty years ago or whenever, that to me is is an entirely too great a leap in in knowledge. I mean, you you, you can't know for sure because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean. Everybody's you're, in, you're in a situation of extremity and stress and this and that, right? Yeah. And um, so, so like, for instance, right? So, I mean, the, the thing that I hear and a lot of people hear, you know, with, with parents is, well, they did the best they could, but the knowledge that they had, right? Yeah. But let me ask you this. Do you watch TV? Uh, yes. Okay. Did you watch TV when you were growing up? Yes. Tell me some of the sitcoms that were family-based that you may have watched when you were growing up. Um, uh, Rugrats. I don't. I mean, honestly, I don't. No, no, no. Sitcoms, and that's a that's a kids show. Um, I mean, you you sound too young for the Cosby Show, right? Yeah. I, however, I did watch a lot of the Cosby. I was big into the Cosby Show. I watched the Brady Bunch. I kind of like was into the older ones, even though I was I'm 23. I didn't right. watch okay, good. No, listen, yeah, and, and you did that entirely in preparation for this conversation, and I really appreciate that because I got a big hole in my TV watching in my 20s because I was in school and blah, didn't really watch, have a TV. But anyway, okay, so you know, we talk about uh, you know, family ties and, and um, the Cosby show and uh, uh, Full House, Full House and, and you name it, right? There's, there's you know, Eight is Enough and all of this kind of stuff, right? Did you ever see a child getting yelled at in these shows? No. No. Did you ever see a child getting spanked? No. Did you ever see a child getting a chair flipped over with them inside it? No. How did parents deal with the children? Uh, laugh tracks. I don't... I mean, they, talk, they sat down and talked to them. They did. They reasoned with them. Bill was best at that. Did you ever see children crying because they were even getting a timeout? No. That wouldn't get very good ratings. But isn't that fascinating? So that's what they're trying to... Um... Well, let me, let me tell you why. And this is why when people say, my parents did the best they could with the knowledge that they had, I ask, was there a TV in the house? Did anyone ever watch any sitcoms where they were children? Oh, you're saying... Okay. Well, I don't because, think... Because then you've had dozens or hundreds or thousands of hours of examples of calm, peaceful, rational, non-aggressive parenting. That's slightly more scripted. I see your point. It's it's still a little bit more scripted, you know. Like well, so what? I mean, lots of it, lots of educational videos are, are, are scripted, right? I mean, kids shows are scripted. That doesn't mean they can't teach you how to read, right? Yeah, but I would say the level of emotional intensity is not always. I mean, you can act 
emotional and I get that, but no, no, sorry. There's, there's a layer that you're not getting yet. And I apologize. That sounds condescending and I, I don't mean it that way, but, but they're the shows themselves, but the shows reflect a demand on the part of parents, right? Mm-hmm. Why do you never see a child getting spanked in a sitcom on television or even a TV movie on television or even a drama on television? Because to some extent, it's kind of terrifying. Well, because if you did that, then people would not watch the show. They would complain, right? Yeah. Do you see how bizarre that is? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, just see how bizarre that is. 90% of parents spank their children, but if you spank a child on television, it would be pretend spanking, of course, right? Yeah. Then people would stop watching the show. Yeah. They'd be horrified. People would be appalled. In other words, if you did what, if you showed honestly what 90% 90 of parents are doing, they'd be appalled, shocked, horrified, and outraged. Um. Yeah, yes, there would be dissatisfaction. I don't know if they'd be out. They they would probably not be completely outraged, but I get that there would be... Hey, let listen, man. These people who write these shows, they're not stupid. If they could raise their ratings by showing a spanking, I'm sure that they would. I'm not saying that spankings would increase ratings. I'm almost certain they would reduce ratings, but somebody might go, oh, yeah, I spanked my kid, but that's not what they'd want to watch. It wouldn't be as enjoyable. Uh, but I think it would be not less enjoyable. I think that people would get quite upset. Because it's, it's a blanket prohibition. And it's not outlawed. It's just yeah. never shown. And, and the reason I'm bringing all this up, right, is, is there is a weird split in society, right? And the split in society is every, most people parent in this particularly aggressive way or there's a, 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 styles of a, a, elements of aggression in the parenting that they do. And yet the shows that people consume about parenting show nothing but peaceful, rational, empathetic parenting so people want one thing but yet do another so um, well, how does people, cl- people look anybody who's watched these shows cannot claim that they didn't know any other way to parent yes yes i mean you can yeah you can know intellectually what's best but when you get thrown into the heated moment and you have a shallow toolbox then yes oftentimes anger which is a cheap ploy can get pulled out because it gets immediate results however it gets long-term resentment it gets immediate results and it stops the action at hand yeah i don't think you'll be able to help your girlfriend until you stop just making up blanket excuses because every time i've talked about this and yeah i don't say this was i'm resentment i'm just sort of pointing it out but whenever i talk about this you dodge right so when you mention the sitcom what you're trying to say is that You're coming to conclusions about your girlfriend's father's motivations through her comments when she obviously has got some scar tissue from this aggression she experienced as a child, right? Uh, Yes. Yes. And so my suggestion, you know, it's just my suggestion. I mean, I don't know what you should do. This is just my thoughts, you know, amateur idiot hour on the internet as usual. These are my thoughts on the subject since you asked for them. Mm -hmm. I think it is irrational and premature to jump to conclusions about somebody else's motivations until you've really studied it, so to speak, right? Whatever, whatever that subject is. So how would I go? Should I just ask more questions about her upbringing or what, should, what, what could I do 
to help make a clearer, more accurate depiction of what really occurred so we can get closer to pinpointing the problem. Well, um, the first question is, what was her experience of aggression as a child or of being able to say no? Do you know what my second question is? Uh, what was my experiences? What was your experience with compliant people when you were a child? Uh, I was a people pleaser. I tend to be compliant. My father used aggressive aggression, but in a much more passive sense, not, as, not quite as in your face physically, but definitely. And your mom? Uh, she was a doormat. Do you need me to put those two together or do you want to do that yourself? So am I the door? Am I am I taking on the role of my mother, and she's taking on the role of her father? Nope. Um, a doormat is someone who can't say no, right? Yes. And your mother couldn't say no, right? Okay, so I'm taking on the father portion, and she's taking on the mother portion. You're again. You're really rushing to conclusions here. We're just starting to process this, okay. right? So you're just like, ah, here's the uh, no, no. <laughs> okay. No, but what you know, the th I think the place to look is. If your experience of femininity is an inability to say no, mm -hmm. it is. and your mother and your girlfriend have an inability to say no, that's an important thing to know. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Did your mother create, dare I say, justifications for your father's aggression? Yes. They did get divorced. Yes. Yes, she did. And... So you have a habit, you know, again, this is just my, my thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, it seems to me that you would have a habit of, um, of feeling more comfortable with people who were uh, passive, uh, doormats, as you, as you say, and who create excuses for other people's aggression. Yes. Damn, you're good. So, sorry, go ahead. So damn, you're good. <laughs> well, it's, you know, I, I hate to say it's obvious, and it never is from the inside. I hope no, you understand that. The, the odds of you seeing this would be tiny, just as the odds of me seeing in my own life are tiny, but that's why we need each other right, to have these conversations. Say, I'm, right? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's fine. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> this is the listener part of the show. Inter you're not interrupting. You know, why would I do this? Now, you said that your girlfriend has a habit of taking on other people's problems while avoiding her own? Yes. Tell me how you've been doing this in your conversation about your girlfriend with me. I've been neglecting to confront the fact that I drift towards people who would do such a thing. Cool. Yeah, you're saying that uh, the issue is my girlfriend's, how can I help her with this issue that is my girlfriend's alone uh, and that I really want to help her with and I have no issues, by the way. Did I mention that my girlfriend has an issue that I need to focus on? Yeah, she's, uh, I, I play a much larger role than I thought. Right, and that's important because if you're trying to, quote, help her without looking at your own history with these issues – then it seems to me very unlikely that you would be able to help her. And oh. my concern, of course, is that, you know, if you, if you love the woman and, and you want to spend time with her and maybe get married or you're happy with her, then I would strongly suggest not trying to help her about things which remain largely unconscious for you because it's just going to fall all over itself, right? What can I do? What can I, how can I best work on myself that would help our relationship like this? What could I do to, for me? 
then. Yeah. Because that seems like you've heard, you, you've probably heard about a hundred listeners ask me this question before, right? I, okay, I've got the knowledge. What do I do? Give me a 10 point plan that takes at least uh, only, only six hours. And then I'm willing to do it. And then everything will be fine. And what's the answer? Um, further investigate my relationship in the past and how that would correlate with my relationship. <laughs> it sounds like you're reading from the back of the FDR matchbook, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, further, oh, sorry, I misread. I, I'm not, the biggest, I guess I don't know. That's, that, to be honest, I don't know. Right. Right. Well, um, the first thing that, I mean, there's six million things you could do, right? And, you know, it's like somebody saying, okay, now I know I live in China and I need to learn Mandarin. What do I need to do? Well, you need to learn Mandarin. Well, how do I do that? Well, there's lots of different ways you can do it, but blah, 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 right? So. What man, okay, so in, in that. Okay, so so this is, this is what I would do if I were in your shoes, right? Uh, first of all, I would sprint for a mile because you're 23 and could still do that comfortably. That's what I would do first. Uh, and then secondly, I guess I would spend a lot of time on the internet because I missed the virility of being 23. No, I'm kidding. But, okay, so what I would do is first sit down and I would say, I would say this to my girlfriend. Listen, honey, honey bunch, honey bunch of the votes. I owe you an apology. I really owe you an apology because I've been talking to you about your inability to say no, like it's just some isolated problem that you have that I have no history with. But but the truth of the matter is that, you know, and I know this sounds like all kinds of Freudian, but, but the truth of the matter is that my mom has a huge inability to say no. Mm-hmm. Now, my dad wasn't as aggressive as your dad, but my, he was still aggressive enough that my mom felt like she couldn't say no and that she made up and makes up excuses for, for his aggression. And since I didn't know that, I put all of this burden on solving this problem on you. and. There's a distinct possibility that part of what drew me to you, hopefully not a big part, but part of what drew me to you, honey, was the fact that I'm very comfortable with women who can't say no. So I choose you for this thing called can't say no, and then I criticize you or say I need to help you fix this thing that says can't say no, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, uh, you know, I, I'm really attracted to women uh, with small boobs, and then I start dating them and say the first thing they need to do is get a boob job, right? That's just kind of weird, right? Yeah. And so uh, I would apologize for not having the self-awareness. Because, look, if you want her to become self-aware, you become self-aware. Mm-hmm. Did, did you see what I mean? Yes. If you're both overweight and you want her to lose weight, then you need to lose weight. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I would apologize for focusing on this as her issue. Because you have an extensive he- history of this with your mom. I have yet. I haven't that you brought this up there. there yet, but I'm sorry. I haven't. I haven't yet brought it up as it is. As, as it's like it's your problem. It's just something I've noticed, and I, I I was neglecting to see my part in it. Okay. However, you want to refine the apology is completely up to you. Obviously, I can't get all the details right from this side of the internet, but that would be uh, the first thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I would um, I would sit down with my mom. Okay. And I would say. I'd like to learn more about the marriage you had with dad. I'm now 23 years old. I'm a big boy. I'm swinging my weight in the world. I have a girlfriend. And as we all know, our parents' relationship has a big effect on our own relationships. And so in order to 
avoid some mistakes to to obviously i don't want to get married and get divorced i mean it's a terrible yeah, thing my dad it's on his, he just got done with his third divorce and my mom was his second wife and so i'm deathly scared that that'll happen to me <laughs> right and you should be yeah and you should be and that's that's a healthy fear right so i sit down with my mom and say listen i I could spend the next three nights. I want to take you out for dinner or I want to take you with no interruptions. Unplug the phone. Uh, do you mind if I take notes? I want to know about your childhood. I want to know about your parents' marriage. Mom, I want to know about what drew you to dad. I want to know when you thought it was good, when you thought it was bad, when you knew it was unrecoverable. What was the, you know, just ask questions. Mm -hmm. Really, you know, I mean, to plumb the depths of our own parents' history is one of the most valuable things that, that we can do in this life. Because all of those hidden patterns and gravity wells and, and traps and, and catapults, I mean, we, we, they're laid bare. We can see them. We can only avoid the traps we can see, right? Yeah. And so I would talk to your, to your mom. I would talk to your dad, right? There's so much information bound up in the histories of our parents that can truly change our lives. I've actually that it literally is like mining for gold when there's nothing but gold, right? Yeah, I've def I've I've cut all contact from my father. So my mom would be totally open to this conversation. And I've asked her something. I've picked a little bit, but I haven't quite asked as deep as I need to. But No, ask, 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 ask. I, you know, I got a lot of information about my parents' marriage. Uh, and um, I got a lot of information from my dad. Yeah. Uh, and and that's, that's hugely, hugely, hugely important. Um, you know, I mean, if you're not seeing him, I think that's, that's, that's a shame. I mean, obviously, everybody... Uh, can do what they want. Adult relationships are voluntary. But if you ever did see him again, one of the reasons that I would suggest as, as a rationale behind that would be find out information. You need to see your parents as people with histories. You need to see your parents as people who dated, who didn't know each other before, who dated other people, who, you know, so that you can see the steps that led. Because, you know, we only generally know our parents after they've been married for a couple of years and, you know, they're in their 20s or 30s or 40s or whatever. And... That, you know, if we only start figuring out the mistakes they made at those ages, then it's too late because we're already married and have kids, and right? We want to find out if yep. there are things to avoid. We want to find those out sooner rather than later. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could get in contact with them. I would just take picking up the phone, so um might do that. And so first, first apologize. Um, yeah, I think that'd be a good first step. It sounds like I got a lot to figure out. Um and so once I get my, like, once I start noticing certain consistencies in my parents' behavior when I ask about them, like, I'll ask about the history, I'm like, oh, that's where I, you know, I do the same thing, you know. And then once I know that I do the same thing, it's like when you have a bad diet and then you realize you have a bad diet, it's still really hard to change your bad diet. So, like, disciplining yourself to come off of it. Once I get the knowledge about why I shouldn't do a certain behavior, do you believe that behaviors stop not because of discipline, because I have to stop this, blah, blah, blah. It just becomes a matter of like, if I do this, then this destruction will unfold. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, <laughs> quitting smoking isn't easy, but it's impossible if you think smoking is good for you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for the very much, the very valuable input. Hey, you're welcome. You sound vaguely pleased and vaguely not. 
Oh. Uh, and look, I'm sorry about your dad. I mean, I, if your mom's willing to have this conversation with you, fantastic. You know, <laughs> thank her for me if that makes any sense. I mean, I think I think that's great. Uh, the, 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 the greatest gift, you know, uh, is is uh, true honesty on the part of parents about successes and failures. And, you know, that's that's the education that kids, I think, really, really need. Yeah, well, I'll call her tonight and do that. Thank you so much. You're very, very welcome, my friend. And thank you for a great call. I appreciate the forthrightness and the honesty with which you have tackled this very challenging issue. And uh, do, do give my sympathy to your girlfriend uh, for uh, uh, the aggression that she experienced as a kid. Uh, that, is, uh, that is not good, <laughs> to say the least. So I just really wanted to express my sympathy for that. Yeah, well, yeah, I love her, so I'm going to make it work. Or not make it work. I'm going to try the best that I can. So. <laughs> Sounds good, man. Thanks. I appreciate that. Bye. All right. Uh, one more on the line. Uh, guest... How's it going, Stan? Hi. Hi. Um, first, I, I just wanted to thank you for like all your work and stuff. I ordered two of your books. Uh, one is still in the mail and stuff, but like I don't know. I just like been listening to all, everything you you have to say and stuff. And um. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I just have a quick question. I'm having a I have a philosophy class in college. And I just wanted to see like your what your thoughts on a question that that I'm having right now. It it's a extra credit question, and it just says, um, "Explain either pro or con. Can truth be relative?" Can truth be relative? Yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, this is like a discussion that's been floating around um, on the FDR boards after I posted something about how. The youth, the kids of today, the young people of today have trouble even focusing on what moral questions are, right? Uh, so, you know, somebody says, what, what, what was the moral dilemma that you had? And, and kids will say, or young people will say, I had trouble finding an apartment once or I had difficulty finding a job. But those aren't moral dilemmas, right? I mean, so people, morality has really fallen out of favor, out of fashion. Uh, and that's due to two factors, right? I mean, the fall of religiosity as a credible basis for Morality has unfortunately taken the baby out with the godwater, uh, and um, also the uh, hyper-regulation of uh, governmental activity uh, and, and laws and all of that has created such a social safety noose and such a web of control that morality has seemed sort of less relevant, right? So the morality of don't have unprotected sex becomes less important. Um, like if you're not in a in a, um, a situation to raise a kid, it becomes much less important if there's welfare and free education or quote free education, all that. So yeah, I think morality has sort of fallen by the wayside in in a lot of ways. And the reason I'm saying morality is that so when people say subjective morality, that seems to me like an entire contradiction in terms. An entire contradiction in terms. If it's subjective, it's not morality. And if it's morality, it's not subjective. It's like saying um, personal science. No. <laughs> if, yeah. you know, if, if it's personal, then it's not science. And if it's science, then it's not personal. You know, it's so people say, what's your philosophy? No, no, no. If it's my philosophy, it's not philosophy, <laughs> right? If it's mine only, then it's my subjective opinions or whatever. But if it's philosophy, then it's not mine. You know, nobody says... Your physics or my biology. It's like, no, it's either biology or it's not. Anyway, so I just sort of wanted to point that out, that there's these contradictions in terms that we've become so corrupted philosophically that we can't even identify them clearly, which is 
a great tragedy. Yeah. And so when the question was, uh, can truth be subjective or is truth subjective? Is that no, right? can truth be relative? Can truth be relative? Um, well, uh, the, the way I can tell you how I would answer that question, and then you can obviously cogitate it on, on it as you like. Yeah. Can truth be relative? I think so. I think so. Uh, so if I say I like ice cream, that can be a true statement. Um, it's relative to my preference for ice cream. That's, mm -hmm. that's fine. Um, so truth can be relative. It can be relative to particular preference. If I say ice cream contains milk, then that is not a relative statement, right? That's a, that's a true, false, factual statement, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, truth, truth can be relative. But truth is not only relative, because if everything was relative, there'd be no such thing as truth, right? Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, I would say the truth can be relative, but the truth that is relative is the least interesting truth of all. I mean, who gives a shit if I like ice cream, right? Yeah. What we care about but, but is what is those, virtuous. Aren't those like opinions, sort of? Yeah, but, but you can say something true about someone's opinion, right? Yeah. No, right, so I, uh, I'm going to assume, right, so in the recent uh, video that I put out about spanking, 80% of parents, 90% of parents spank, and 80% of parents wish they didn't have to. So it's a true statement, as true as you can get in these kinds of environments, but I think it's a relatively true statement that 80% of parents don't want to spank. Yay, good for them, right? Now all they have to do is stop, <laughs> stop spanking, right? Yeah. Um, but so, so that is a truth about people's opinions. Or as close to a truth as you can get about people's opinions. Somebody who's going to a Red Sox game dressed up as a Red Sox or whatever the hell they do and, and with a Red Sox hat and, and uh, you know, he's got a tattoo of the Red Sox emblem on both of his earlobes and the forehead or whatever. We, we can say this, this person is a Red Sox fan, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's a true statement about their subjective preferences. But who cares? I mean, the truths that are relative are completely boring and unimportant, I, I think. Now, of course, mm -hmm. I just said the one about spanking and so on. But at a personal level, it it really doesn't matter what people's personal opinions are. Uh, what matters really are the truths that are objective and, and provable and empirical and all that kind of stuff. Like like virtue, like that, that kind of stuff. The non-aggression principle, property rights, all that kind of good stuff. That yeah. seems to me the truths that matter. And so, yeah, truth is... Truth can be relative, but who cares about relative truths? And that's not 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 very important. How, um, how about like when someone says like like they have their own truth about life, and someone else has their other truth? Like like what do they mean by that? Because a teacher was using that as an example. Like like his truth could be true, but your truth is also true. But um, they they well, but then it's not a, but then it's not a truth, right? So somebody may say. The best life is the life of contemplation. And someone else may say that the best life is the life of daredevil activity. Yeah, the, but these aren't truths about lives. Like, what they mean is the best life for me, right? Yeah. The best life for me. Now, if someone says human beings are mammals, warm-blooded, suckle their young, don't lay eggs, blah, 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 then that is true, right? That's not a subjective opinion. If somebody says human beings are reptiles, assuming they're not David Icke, then <laughs> they're wrong. 
So yeah, people can say, I think the best life is, huh, right? And you see this all the time, right? You, you pick up Maxim, right? And the, the best life seems to be getting a really close shave, knowing your scotches and skydiving <laughs> and, you know, banging pinups. I mean, that, that seems to be the best life that they can come up with. And so lots of people will make that case. For other people, you know, think of the sort of typical ghetto kid. The best life is having power and money and really baggy clothing and whatever, right? No one, whatever, rap artists. And for a country guy, it's different. So these are lifestyles. Lifestyle is a funny word because it almost always describes people who have neither life nor a style. But um, people will say that they have particular approaches to life. Or, but, but that's not philosophy. That's just opinion. That's just, you know, yeah. I like skydiving is not a work by Aristotle for many reasons. But, um, uh, but that's not philosophy. You know, as soon as somebody says, my philosophy of life is, then they don't understand what philosophy is. Nobody mm-hmm. says, my science is, right? My yeah. mathematics is, right? My engineering is. No, 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 no. If it's math, science, or engineering, it has to have some objectivity to it, some validity uh, that is universal, some empirical evidence, whatever, right? Yeah. And so when people say, well, what about conflicts in people's personal philosophies well you've just contradicted yourself because if it's personal it ain't a philosophy and if it's philosophy it ain't personal and um uh, so so that's you know the, the typical confusion that that occurs and people love to conflate these two things because everybody wants their opinions to be philosophy right yeah, because it, it, uh, you know, know then it sounds like you're much more you're less opinionated and more philosophical but that's just not true yeah well um this teacher that I'm having, like, he actually wrote his own book, and um, he, he like, makes us read off it. Like, that's the whole lecture, like, him reading off the book or whatever. And, nice. like, so sometimes I think it's, it's annoying because, like, he puts, like, his opinions on it, I'm guessing. And um, to me, it doesn't make sense, like, what he said, that, like, someone's truth could, like, be different than your truth, and they could contradict each other. And I don't know, it's just annoying to me, like... Well, then it's not truth, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, yeah, like, like I mean, I if if you like chocolate ice cream and I like vanilla ice cream, these truths don't contradict each other because we're not claiming that they're universal truths. Yeah, yeah, I know. I I understood that. Like when when he first said that, like I was like, man, this guy. Well, what you say to him, right? Say to him, well, my truth is that I deserve an A even if I don't show up. Is that okay <laughs> with you? Yeah, I guess. And the moment he says no, then it's like, okay, so there's some, some stuff that's outside opinion, right? Yeah. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying that that would be a fun thing. <laughs> you do it because I didn't have the guts to do it when I was in college. So you do it and, and live my life for me. That, that what should. do you think about like, like, te- like philosophy, like, like pursuing it in like school and stuff? Like... Um, well, I'll tell you what I think of that. Uh, I think, and I can only tell you from my own experience, but I think that studying philosophers is a useful thing to do in school, right? So take a class on Plato and Aristotle and Heidegger and Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and whatever it is, if, if you're into those guys. I mean, you can, of course, study it on your own, but I think it's useful to really understand somebody else's thinking, to have somebody who's experienced and able to communicate that well. And, and that's sort of what I did. I studied the history of philosophy. I didn't study philosophy much itself, right? So mm-hmm. I took courses on, on the history of philosophy and what people thought beforehand, and I found that was really helpful. But um, uh, I didn't take lots of courses on, uh, you know, philosophy, philosophy. My degree was in history. So, so I mean, my preference was to study what other people thought uh, and, um, 
some some logic, which I think is a useful thing to study no matter what you're doing. But um, uh, that, that that was sort of what worked for me, uh, and I think there's some value in that. But I don't know if that's a universal statement. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. You're very welcome, and best of luck. Things uh, be be wary of this teacher. People who are relativists tend to be quite savage in particular areas, uh, particularly if their relativism is questioned. So uh, yeah. I would uh, I would uh, be careful with this guy uh, and and be alert to any particular changes, uh, and certainly don't uh, don't get yourself an F for the sake of principle because the principle will survive getting an A in a course from someone you don't respect, but the course won't survive your principles if you get an F. So that would be yeah. my suggestion. Yeah, that's true. It's, the truth is not a sword to be drawn at all costs, as I write <laughs> in a novel. So. Yeah. All right. So I think we're done. Thank you, everybody, so, 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 so much. I really appreciate your time. And a great, great set of questions. Uh, I always love these Sunday afternoon visits with everybody. We all should be simping mint tea under a southern porch i think and smoking cigars the size of a baby's forearm but anyway perhaps not uh, <laughs> not at the moment please 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 remember that we have two new donation levels five dollars a month five dollars a month come on you could find that looking under your couch uh, five bucks a month and a hundred bucks a month and uh, if you can't decide well i'm sure you know which one i would prefer but yeah do please do keep helping i mean i i went down to new york and you know libertarian conferences they don't have a lot of money. It, it costs some money to go down to New York and stay in hotels and all of that kind of stuff. But I think it was really worth it for, uh, for the speech and, and meeting everyone and so on. So uh, whatever you can do to chip into the not insubstantial costs of running this particular outfit, uh, I would really, really appreciate it. We've got over 35 million downloads. I don't know, probably close to 200,000 book downloads by now. And so uh, all of this... It costs money. We all know this. We're free marketers. We're private property people. We are capitalists. So we all know the economics of this kind of stuff. And what was it? $200 billion were given by Americans alone to charity last year. I'm not saying that we have to hit that. Though that would be a money bomb. Eh, who knows? On my birthday, that might be uh, fun. But, um, uh, you know, the it's not often the best product that wins, but the product that has the most advertising revenue. And that's an important thing to remember when we look at the struggle of getting philosophy into the world versus other things. There is a cold, hard cash component that I'm sure we're all aware of. So if you could go to freedomainradio.com forward slash donate, I, 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 and all the other listeners would hugely appreciate it. And have yourself a truly wonderful week. And I will talk to you soon.